as human beings, there's a distinct desire to be above the fray, to be clean, being muddy, being dirty, being in the fray is like, it is, is really ultimately what it's all about. And that was one of the greatest lessons out of being in the hospital for me was that, that I thought the confidence came from what I could do. And the realization was that the confidence was knowing that I could endure whatever was going to come my way. And that's a much more powerful confidence. Inspiring words from 13-time Paralympic medal winner, Chris Waddell. I'm John Moffat, and big welcome to my podcast, Sports Life Balance. At just 20 years old, a life-shattering ski accident paralyzed Chris from the waist down. And incredibly, within a year, he was back on the slopes. And then making his first Paralympic ski team just three years after becoming a paraplegic. From his physical limitations sprung a driving desire to defy expectations. Chris went on to compete in seven Paralympic winter and summer games. He's the most decorated male paraskier of all time. And in 2019, he was elected into the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Hall of Fame. And of all of the metaphorical mountains he's conquered in his lifetime, none of those were more real than becoming the first paraplegic to successfully climb the 19,341-foot summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. And, oh yeah, if these aren't monumental enough achievements, Chris was voted one of People Magazine's 50 Most Beautiful People. Chris, big welcome to our podcast. Thanks, John. This is just awesome. I am I am happy to talk to you and, and excited about it. Well, I'm super excited to have you as well, and especially as our first Paralympian guest on Sports Life Balance. Oh, what an awesome honor. All right. Well, I think I think I think you've got a lot to say and a, a lot of insight that that people will get a lot of uh, benefit from. Um, I was thinking when I was preparing to uh, speak with you is that most, if not all, Paralympians have very different life experiences than their Olympic counterparts. Would you would you say that's true? You know, it it goes back and forth. I mean, because because when you're talking about Paralympians, you're talking about people who. In Paralympics, obviously, the the disabled version of the Olympics or the adaptive version of the Olympics. So you have some people who have congenital issues. Uh, you have some people like me who who had a trauma during during their lives that that pushed them in a different direction. But yeah, we've had different different experiences. I mean, I know like when I was on the ski team, there were there were three of us at least who had skiing accidents. Wow, and, and had had you know some racing experience beforehand. So, so that's I mean, it, yeah, it, it, it's a different Paralympics is a is a different world entirely. I think, but then it can be entirely similar because the you know, sports is sports, and and you're also trying to take it from that top level. Like I, I always I consistently watch the best ski racers in the world to figure out how I might be able to do more of what they were doing because that was going to make me better. So it was the same sport and that was the cool part of it, really. No, no, that is the cool part is uh, that that part of us as a core as athletes that we share that common bond and that common shared experience. Um, and you mentioned a little bit, you have an amazing story, but you weren't always disabled. Um, 
let's go back um, to when you started skiing, I guess, as a boy, I, I really don't know. You know, I started skiing. So, so I have pictures of, of myself and my German shepherd dog Thor in the backyard of our house. Well, actually sort of like house. It was a trailer. I think my parents were teaching. My father was teaching at a school called Hampshire country school in Ringe, New Hampshire. And wow. so this is just classic, classic new England with like the, you know, with like the, the, the stone wall out front, you know, that they'd made basically picking stones out of the field to, so that there weren't so many stones in the field. And I was out in that field. And, and I think I was for the word word in the family was I was a little bit active as a child. <laughs> And and my mother, who was at this point, was either pregnant with my brother, who is 28 months younger, so two and a half years younger than me, uh, was either pregnant with him or had just had him. So she had her hands full either right. way. And she said to me, she's apparently, this is what she told me, she said, either you're in or you're out. I'm not going to take your skis off so you can come in and put them back on. You're in. And, and I guess, according to her, that I just loved being out there, that I would be out there, you know, cheeks bright red, all of that stuff where she was, you know, potentially concerned that the people were worrying that, that she had shut me out. And she's like, no, 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 really, he, it's him. He wants to be there. And so that's where I started. Uh, my father skied. I wanted to be like my father. We moved to Western Massachusetts to, and my father started teaching. My father was a school teacher, but he also taught, wanted to teach skiing. And so he taught at this little place called Mount Tom, 680 feet of vertical, Holyoke, mm -hmm. Massachusetts, owned by a construction company. So we had spectacular uh, snowmaking, grooming, and lights. It would stay lit until nine o'clock at night. The ski school was, you know, like a lot of American ski schools, it was a little bit of Austria that they they picked up and plopped down in the middle of Western Massachusetts. Right, right. But I saw kids racing and that's where, and I looked at it and said, okay, I wanted to do this. And so at six years old, I, I, I started racing and luckily my coach, who's a guy who, who continues to be a friend to this day. So... It was just, it was just awesome. I'm like, he was just, he was so enthusiastic. It was just, it was a cool sport. He came down in every run and they said, you know, Hey, this is what you did. Well, this is what you can do better. Go on up and try it again. And I was like, this is, this is great. And follow the old kids, you know, like the 13 year olds, like they're, they look like the coolest people on earth. So I want to be like <laughs> those guys. Well, I mean, so far, like aside from it being an antidote to your activity level, um, I, how did you discover that you were fast, that you wanted to pursue it as a competition? Oh, fast is a funny thing, right? Because because I think fast when I was little was, did I beat my buddy? And, you right. know, my, my best friend growing up, a guy named Bissell Hayes, and, you know, it's like, did I beat him? Okay, if I beat him, then I won, really. And because we were so young, because we were racing like, you know, starting at, at six, we were racing 13 and under. So there's a big difference between wow. a six-year-old and a 13 and under, uh, a 13-year-old. And but by the time I was 13, I was actually I was actually number one in the state, and and recognized that I was fast. It was also you know that's I think for me where 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 I reached a bit of an impasse as well because 13 and under was kind of like 
it was sort of fun and it was uh, it was it was all it was all well and good, you know, and it was competition. But at the same time, once you moved up, then it got more serious and right. and living kind of in the flatlands. Uh, it, it was it, it was easy to think that I, I felt I felt like in some ways that I did myself a bit of a disservice that I felt like watching like watching the Olympics, watching those things. I felt like, well, that those are people on television. Like those, those aren't me. That's not necessarily my dream. I do the same kind of thing that they do, but but I think that that it's you know I, I often say sport was my greatest teacher because because it's where I have my biggest my biggest obstacles. And I think going from thirteen to fourteen years old suddenly it was a whole new world. And 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 I think that that I really I didn't I didn't believe in myself. I didn't believe in myself moving forward. And I actually went from four as a 14 year old. I won the very first race over, over Christmas time. And then, and then I think I went a year and a half without finishing a race. Wow. And, and at 15, I was basically, you know, I was thinking, okay, well, this is, this is it. Like, like I might have to just quit because it was just, it was just there, there was no way to sort of escape that that feeling of desperation, you know, of like, well, when's mm-hmm. it going to go wrong? I know it's going to go wrong. Uh, so, so yeah, that was really hard. And then turning and trying to trying to then then build myself up. I think that sometimes we have to the the greatest lessons that we learn are the most difficult lessons that we have to learn, and and having to take responsibility. And say, okay, how can I do this? True, true, and and those those obstacles and hurdles are things that all athletes need to uh, figure out a way to get over, um, as well as in life. Don't you think? I think it is. I mean, it's it's one of those things that, as strange as it sounds, it's easy sometimes to feel jealous of people who have had a more difficult time. And say, oh, well, because you had a more difficult time, that actually prepared you for a far greater success later on. And you think, huh, but that's not what I would have thought as I was going through this. You want to think of the, you know, the success that comes easy and you're naturally talented and 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 sure you work hard and everything, but but I think that that there's so many different like sort of nooks and crannies kind of uh, kind of uh, lessons. That, that come through. And, and yeah, I think it is. I mean, sport is a great little microcosm for all of what we need to learn in life. I and mean, perseverance being one of those biggest things, the perseverance and the, and the patience, right? The patience to, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make this change. It's going to happen. I'm going to continue to be committed to that change as opposed to, you know, the mentality of, okay, well, I just hit it really hard right now create that change. And then I can go back to just kind of coasting. Everything is fine. So, you know, I think like those are the lessons. I don't know about you, but those are the lessons I seem to learn over and over and over again. Yeah, I, I, I would definitely concur. I think we all feel that way. And our athletic careers prepared us for many of the obstacles that we face in real life. But um, you obviously, when you were 15 years old, you got through the rough patches because you went on to ski in college, correct? I went to ski in college. So I, so I went to Middlebury College 
And I was actually preparing to ski my freshman year. I'd started in the middle of the year and I skied with the team, but I didn't compete for the team. And, mm. and so that year, and so for me, I was looking at, at skiing division one college as really kind of like my Olympics. Like I knew that my, my life, what my competitive life was not going to go beyond college, but I could realize how good I could be if I had, you know, if I had the, if I, if I really believed in myself and, and, and I went into it and said, you know what, I, mentally, I need to be stronger than I am. And in order to be mentally stronger, I need to push myself in training to the point where I feel like I want to quit. Like that was my goal of training. I want to feel like wow. I want to quit. And if I could get there, and then if I move beyond it, then it was creating potentially a new narrative, right? The new narrative was, well, this is unexplored territory. And if this is unexplored territory, maybe when you get out on the hill, you'll be able to do some things or believe that you can do some things that you couldn't do before. And I needed to prove to myself that I could be successful in real life. And sport was my vehicle to prove that to myself because I needed to know. I needed to know that, okay, you're a competitive person, but when you get into the biggest competition, are you going to have what it takes to actually succeed. And, and that's what I wanted to, that, that was my assignment to myself as a, as a college athlete. Obviously things took a little bit of a crazy turn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it would be your Christmas break, your holiday break, uh, of your freshman year where you were on the ski slope, uh, December 20th, 1988, correct? Where exactly where, yeah. you had a, where you had an accident where I did. Yeah. So, so I had finished exams on the 19th and hopped in my car and or hopped in, in my parents' car, which they had dropped off for me and packed with a whole bunch of dirty clothes, you know, from two weeks or a week or whatever it was of exams and, and not not taking care of anything other than trying to pass exams. And, you know, four pairs of skis or six pairs of skis or something like that and whatever and, and drove home. And the next morning, my brother wanted to go to the mountain. My brother, two and a half years younger, was actually at a ski academy at that time. He was at Burke Mountain Academy. And, and in some ways, looking at my brother, I felt like he had he, he had allowed himself to dream. You know, mm. he, he had gone where I'd gone sort of the prep school route and and thought, OK, well, I need to I need to make sure that I'm getting the best education that I can and all of this stuff. And 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 he went to Ski Academy and and said, I'm going to see if I can be the best in the world. We went to the mountain place called Brookshire East, where we'd we'd been at Mount Tom first. Then we moved to Brookshire East, which I think is about a thousand feet of vertical. So so almost, you know, almost as high as the as the <laughs> as the Empire State Building. Uh, but, <laughs> But we, uh, we, we went there and met up with a few buddies and the guy who ran the mountain, his kids raced with us. And so even though there was one little swath of snow that went down the mountain, which the rest of the mountain was completely white, we were going to get to train that day. Regardless of what was going on with the general public, we would get the train. And so, so our coach said, you know, go take a couple of runs and we'll meet at the training training hut and go uh, training shack and go take some gates and go set a slalom course. And so we took two runs and he wasn't there yet. And so we decided we'll, we'll take one more run. And we went to take one more run. I was testing a new pair of skis and, 
And, you know, it's just one of those things like you're, it's the beginning of the season and you're trying to, you're trying to search for that feeling, right? That feeling of sort of like being in concert with, with your technique, with the equipment, with the mountain, with, with everything, right? And just sort of feeling like you, you are in control of what's going on or you're, 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 you're part of it. It's part of you. And, and I was just, that's what I was doing. And I went over a little knoll and in the middle of a turn, my, one of my skis popped off. I want to say it was my right ski. I don't remember. I remember my ski popping off. I don't wow. remember anything else happening and nobody saw it. I was skiing with a group, but I was sort of in, in the lead there and nobody else had come over the mountain and, or come over that knoll. And they, they did come over that knoll and I was lying sort of on the side of the trail and I was conscious, but I was in shock. I'd broken uh, two vertebrae, bunch of ribs, collarbone. Uh, I guess I had a, you know, knock on the head. So I had a concussion as well. And this is before, you know, before it was compulsory to wear helmets all of the time. And I didn't right. have a helmet on and, and, uh, and I told them I didn't, I didn't think I'd hit a tree or anything that I, and so really it sounds like I fell in the middle of the trail, just did something weird and ended up there. And, and so, yeah, so that sent it off in an entirely different direction. Well, uh, it, it ended up, the accident ended up paralyzing you. Yes. Yeah. Good. Oh, it, well, it did. I mean, and that's the, that's the funny thing. So, I mean, the funny thing. Yeah, this is, this is where the audience is going. That's the funny thing. Okay, I'm interested to hear what the funny thing about that is. Uh, the curious part of it is that, you know, I went to the hospital. I did all of the tests and everything. And my parents, and my brother, by this point, I was at Hartford Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut. So ambulance had driven me to one hospital and then a helicopter flew me down to Hartford. And so they're in this tiny little waiting room for hours, just waiting, waiting. They have no idea. And the doctor finally came out and he said, your son, your brother's broken his back. He'll never walk again. And the doctor turned and left. And, wow. and, and, and so it was, it was heartbreaking for them. I mean, heartbreaking news. I mean, this is, this is it. Like, I mean, for them, they look at it and go, this is, this is the end of the end of his life in some ways, right? This is a death sentence, really. Because uh, we didn't know anything. We didn't know any better. And 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 so they cried. And and this is this is part of the resilience is that when they were done crying, my father said, that's the last time we can cry. Wow. We have to be strong for Chris. And that to me is representative of who my parents, you know, were and are, you know, just, just the they had a great sense of what was of what was important. They were there to support me unconditionally. It was not the accident didn't happen to them. The accident happened to me and they were there to support me and help me as bruising as that doctor's diagnosis was to them. They felt like they didn't want to put that label on me. They didn't want to say, you're paralyzed. You're paralyzed. You'll never walk again. Your life is over. And so they made a conscious decision to let me create my own story, my own path. But also anyone who has been in the hospital or has had a life altering injury knows that 
is really hard once reality starts setting in. It, it is. It is. It's it, it's funny. I look back on this time in my life, you know, because I mean, you go through the athlete thing, right? And you think, and there and there's a bit of a mentality as an athlete, right? That well, I've done this, and and I've done this better than other people. You know, there's there's this ego, and and so okay, well, this is this is what's happening. But these people don't know me. They don't know me, and and you know what? I believed. I believed in the miracle. And I think probably a lot of people who go through the situation believe in the miracle and might even believe in the miracle to the point where it's about self-preservation that you kind of have to believe in the miracle. Like it's going to be okay. And, and it was, it was the most powerful that I've ever been. You know I mean? Like I competed throughout my life and and, and we know, we know those differences, right? We know those differences that like, if, if, if we're completely prepared, like we know the times when we have a, a spectacular performance and everything works out right. And those are so infrequent. They don't happen all that often. I mean, you're at, you know, you might be at 90, 95, you know, but when you get to sort of 99%, you go, wow, like that was, that was awesome. Like, let's bottle that. Let's bottle that. Let's, let's make sure that, that I can drink that tonic every single time I get to the starting line or the starting gate. <clears throat> and, and when I was in the hospital, I felt like that most powerful version of myself and the most powerful version of myself meant that I wasn't giving in to the moment. I think it's, it's really easy to give in to the moment. And, and oftentimes that's just, that's just a, you know, just with ourselves, nobody else might even know what's going on, but it's, but it's giving up that just that little bit. It's, it's, it's allowing the frustration to creep in to the point where you say, that's it. I quit. I'm done. It's, it's uh you know, it, it's worrying about about that that embarrassment or mm-hmm. or those kinds of things, and letting that creep in and go. Oh, you know, maybe it's better not to risk too much right now because because I have so much to lose, and I'd done that throughout my life. And and when I was in the hospital, I felt like I didn't have that luxury. I just didn't have the luxury. Because in a lot of ways, it was life and death. I was, I was up against proving that I, could, that I could live, but at the same time, also, also proving, you know, it was still like I started that fall proving that I needed to be successful, that I could be successful as a person. And it was that same kind of thought of like, well, when do you prove that you can be successful? Well, you prove that you can be successful when you confront the biggest problem. And there's a part of it where you go, well, hey, so uh, so you want to prove that you could be successful. So uh, well, maybe you encountered a little bit bigger problem than you yeah. anticipated here, right? The big one. Uh, did you, but we're, we're also all human, right? And you're fighting the valiant fight. Uh, but did you ever just stop and say, how in the world did this happen to me? You know, there was part of, 
part part of that power that I was talking about was was not really allowing myself to give into that. I it, it, I mean it, it it sounds strange. I I cried once in the hospital. And and that was when I got transferred from Hartford Hospital to University Hospital in Boston. And it was it was uh, so this must have been middle of January. And we had not had a lot of snow, but it's New England. So it was cold. You know, the you get some, you know, some water on the roads or whatever that then turns into ice that expands the the you know the the uh, the roads and stuff, and then it then it you know you get all the frost heaves and all this stuff and everything. And so it was this miserable hot, uh, ambulance ride from Hartford to Boston, and I felt I felt vulnerable. Like the night before, I'd been. Now, I mean, you're you're lying in a hospital bed. There's not a whole heck of a lot to do. You have visitors, and so I was I was watching television, right? And I'm watching a uh, watching a hockey game, and one guy hit another guy into the boards. And as a 20 year old, I thought those guys should watch out, like they they could get hurt. I'm like, who is this having this thought? Like this is you know not like hey that's a great hit. Like those guys should watch out. And I felt like I felt fragile. I felt really right. fragile. And, and so I think that there was a whole lot more tension. And, and, and that tension basically, I mean, as, as I can understand it, brought itself to, to the point where I had an infection. I had a urinary tract infection. And when I arrived in the hospital in Boston, they took my temperature and I had a temperature of 103. And wow. I was exhausted. I spent most of my time in the hospital asleep, I think. And and all I wanted to do was go to sleep. I mean, this is this is it. This is in some ways it was the easiest way to to sort of deal with the situation was to go back to sleep. And and they wouldn't let me go to sleep, and they wouldn't give me any covers. They packed me in cold compresses to get the fever down, and I was miserable. And my mother was there. My mother, who was who was, you know, I mean, she she, she was the one who, when this happened to me, her first thought was that she wished it was her. Instead of me, she would have so gladly traded places with me, but it wasn't. And and so she did, she did whatever she could. And that's the hard part of this situation too, is that those around you, there's not that much they can do. They can be for, there for support, but right. can't do anything else. And so she was there and, and, and I cried and I said to her, I said, you know, I don't want to be like this forever. Like this is, this is, and, 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 you know, I mean, she said what she, what she could, you know, there's, there's no sort of root Newt Rockney kind of speech of like, no, everything's yeah. going to be okay. You know? And it's like, right. you know, and I think she really said like, well, we're going to get through this, which, which really is what, what we were going to do. We were going to get through it. And, and, and that was the only day that I cried. And I think that there was a part of it that, that, that I recognized that it, that it was a slippery slope. If I started thinking, why did this happen to me? Then, then that life that I saw in the hospital might be my life moving forward. And that was really scary. And, and I thought I need to, I need to get out of here. I need to, I need to escape because if I indulge this at all, my, my life could, could potentially be over. And I think life, you know, defining life is is a life where you have options where you have opportunities and and i could see that slipping away 
Well, you ultimately did something about it because you ended up hitting the slopes again. <laughs> I mean, it's just like crazy. I mean, it wasn't that long, right? After your accident that you're back skiing again? Three days short of a year. And obviously, wow. you know, we're sort of dependent upon upon winter coming back around, which which affected that affected the timeline. In my mind, when I was in the hospital, I was still an athlete, right? And I, and I couldn't train, but I could do mental imagery. So I'm lying there in, hosp in the hospital bed, like just training over and over again, mental imagery. And a friend of mine came in, to, in and, and he had a friend who was making an, a documentary film on adaptive skiing. And he said, hey, I have a friend who's doing this. Uh, would you be interested in, you know, learning how to ski again in front of the camera? And I was like, yeah, sure. And so... So, so, I mean, it, it was really, I think it was that easy a question. It, it became much more real when I returned to college. My coach, Bart Bradford, had been out at Mount Hood during the summertime. And Mount Hood is a ski field. So it's wide open, no trees. And you just have lane after lane after lane of training. I mean, this is like, yeah, this is like the equivalent of like, this is like skiing's version of a, of a swimming pool, right? It's, it's just lane after lane after lane. And I'm, I mean, there are 15, maybe 20. And sometimes I think it depends on the year or whatever. And the adaptive team was out there and he was coaching a different team. He was coaching like a junior team. And, but one of his athletes, uh, former athletes coached on the adaptive team, on the disabled team at that point. And so he saw these guys, saw these guys in monoskis, which is amazing because a lot of times during the summertime, we as monoskiers wouldn't go to Mount Hood just because you run out of snow at the bottom, which then means that we have to find a way to get from snow over through the mud to the parking lot. And so, so we didn't go every year, but they happened to go that year. And he saw these guys and he said, you should do it. We want to buy you, you know, we'll get you your, your, we'll get you a monoski and we want you to be part of the team, which to me was like was so cool. I mean, I, I knew yeah. in my mind that I would ski again, but he made it really easy for me. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. But so, so you, you w went back up on the slope, basically sitting atop this singular ski. I mean, didn't fear creep in? <laughs> that's a that's a good and valid question, and one would think that that's exactly what should creep in. Uh, you know, no, really. Then it really, I was not, I was not fearful then, and I think that, you know, this is this is sort of me, you know, years afterwards trying to figure out what exactly was going on. But part of it was that my friends and family skied, my life really had revolved around skiing and, and in order to sort of recover, to be healthy, skiing was going to be a part of that. Um, so I, so, so I think that, I think that it was just, it was such a necessary step in what I needed to do that there was not the, and there was not sort of the, you know, the flashback, kind of thing of like, oh right. no, like I see the accident happening all over again. And, 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 and there was another part of it where like when I was in the hospital, there was one moment when I was in the hospital where I felt like it was sort of like a quiet moment. And I thought, you know, if this is the worst thing that can happen to me, mm -hmm. then I'll never be intimidated again. 
And that intimidation to me was representative of not realizing my goals are really more my potential. That was the that was the biggest barrier, right? Was this this sense of intimidation, this sense of this sense of fear, and and and, and I, I will admit that I have subsequently been intimidated at times, but but you know, but going through that kind of a traumatic thing, you want to believe that a fundamental change, a fundamental shift, has happened. That that I literally was the phoenix. Wow. And, and and I've risen from this. And so as a result, that life that I had before, those those obstacles, those shortcomings, I, those I didn't want those to be me anymore. And and so so there's a combination of kind of those things and the fear. So so, no, I wasn't. I, I mean, I mean, granted, there, there were times that I was scared as I was out there and with really good reason, because I had no idea what I was doing. I think I was completely and totally out of control. And I felt like I felt like I was going like, I mean, once, I mean, this is this is sort of jumping ahead. Once I could actually balance, I felt like I was going like 500 miles an hour. So so there was definitely some some fear, but but the intimidation and the fear of of, of doing it again. No, I felt like I felt like I really, I really had to do it and I had to do it for for me. And this is, this is sort of what I'd signed up for. And so, yeah, that got me, got me over that. And I skied that year. I'm pretty sure that I skied on the first anniversary of the accident. Wow. Which is one of those kind of weird days where in some ways it's a, it's a second birthday. Cause it's like, I go to the hospital, you know, in the hospital, if I go to the hospital, but if I go to the doctors, if I go anywhere, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's a new identity. You said a second birthday relating to the anniversary of you having an accident and becoming paralyzed. Yeah, it really is. It's kind of like a second birthday. It's like a second start. And, and in some ways, the way that I looked at it when I was doing the, uh, you know, when I was, when, when I was coming back, it was like, I was coming back to skiing and, and I was starting all over, but with the experience of someone who had competed for 15 years. And so I knew what I needed to do. I had in my mind, I had, I had a huge competitive advantage because nobody else could possibly know what I knew. And you know, whether that was true or not, that's that's an entirely different story. But in my mind, that's that's the way it was working was that, you know, I had this advantage. I knew what I was supposed to do. And so so in a lot of ways, it was it was a second birthday. And it's it, I mean, think that's that's the that's the wild part of it. Right. Our lives take so many twists and turns. And and, and this turned me in an entirely different, different path. And so in a lot of ways, it really is. It really is a rebirth to think, okay, um, it, it, it is a second birthday. It's it's a new wow. start. Wow. Well, you went all in, all in to the point where you obviously trained enough and got good enough at mono skiing uh, to how long later make the Paralympic Olympic Paralympic team and going to Albertville. So Albertville was 92. So that was March of 92. So I made the team in 
April of 91. So we went from December of 88 to April of 91 that I made the team. And, wow. then, and then March of 92 when I actually competed, you know, in my first Paralympic Games. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I think it, it, it is. It is. It's, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because in some ways it was the way that it had to happen for me, you know, as, as we're, I mean, we we get crazy in terms of our, our timelines. I mean, if you want to talk to somebody who's entirely myopic, like talk to many athletes, right? Like <laughs> the sense of reality uh, and, and, and yeah, and the sense of reality is, is not necessarily the, uh, is not realistic at all. All my friends were going and starting careers. And, and I, I had decided, I'm in this new beginning, right? I decided that my career, this is what I was going to do. This is, I mean, this is, it's, it's the Mark Twain quote, right? And the, uh, you know, the two most important days are the day you're born and the day you, uh, you learn why. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you figure yeah. Out why. yeah. And, and in a lot of ways, that was it for me was, was that, that this is what I was going to do. Like I had, you know, I had done four years of college and didn't interview, didn't, didn't, you know, didn't, didn't do any of that stuff on campus. Like, you know, going to training programs or any of that stuff. I went, I, I, I was going to be an athlete. I was going to be a full-time athlete. I was going to, you know, and, and this is the stuff that's, that's personal. And in some ways it sounds, it sounds crazy when you say it out loud, but that I was going to change the world as wow. a result of what I was going to do as an athlete, which is, which is much different than I'd ever had as an athlete before. Right. I hadn't had that sense of purpose. How, how were you going to change the world? You know, I think that part of it was I was at a ski race the year before my accident at Burke mountain. And it was a GS and this one legged woman, Diana golden showed up at this race. So it's an able-bodied race. There were there were people who were racing on the World Cup at, at this race, and and she showed up, and I'm like, wow, that's I mean that's a little weird. Like, what's what's this woman with one leg doing here? But she was the greatest athlete in my mind, and I'm projecting some onto her, uh, but but she didn't have time for excuses. She didn't have time for, you know, she, she knew she was going to fall down and she's like, yeah, you know what? That's, that's part of the process. I'm going to fall down. Let's get it, get the falling done now and, and keep going. And, and, and to me, it was like, she was the most memorable person at that race because she showed me what it meant to be an athlete, but really ultimately what it meant to be a human being. And, and as somebody with a disability, it's, it's really easy to feel like an invisible part of the society, right? I mean, it's there are a billion people with disabilities throughout the world, but from the time we're little, we're taught not to stare at someone who looks different, right? It's impolite to stare. And, and as a result, I mean, granted, it's not as bad as it was a couple of generations ago where, where you were effectively institutionalized and just, and, and, and locked away. But, but the, the, the message in a lot of ways is that, you know, it's not there, but for the grace of God go I. It's like, no, no, I'm I'm you. I'm you. 
And I'm the you in a lot of ways that you hope to be, you know, that you hope to be that, 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 yeah, when we all hope that when, if something goes horribly wrong, that we can find success out of it, that we can find fulfillment, that we can find happiness out of it. And I think that that, you know, that was the part, the, the changing the world part and, and sport was in some ways it was also, it was an intermediate step. You know, sport, it was like, you know, I, I said early on, which I had no right whatsoever to say this early on, I said, I'm going to be the fastest monoskier in the world. And, and you've had some experience with, with athletes with disabilities. And so you understand sort of the classification nature of it. And so when I was competing, there were three classes of monoskiers and each vertebrae determines a level of function and a level of sensation. And I am in the most disabled of the three classes. I, I basically have kind of like the muscles underneath my sternum, really, and corresponding muscles in my back. And skiing, skiing's a sport where balance is a fairly big part of what you do, right? And somebody at one point had, had referred to people in my class as uh, pumpkins sitting on a fence in the wind for our propensity oh to topple over. So not the most flattering, but, you know, but... <laughs> But, but I had said, I, I want to be the, the, the fastest monoskier in the world. And I felt like I had to be the fastest monoskier in the world because at the, the average layperson couldn't tell a difference and say, oh, well, that's, that's, you know, that's T5 versus T12 or T10 versus T12 or, you know, an amputee versus, you know, they don't, they don't know the difference. We're in the same vehicle. We're using the same equipment. So, so I thought I, I have to do this in order to like, and, and, and the other part of it is I, in order to prove that I'm, that I'm good, but also to prove that it's about skiing, that it's not about the disability, which is the coolest part about sport. And the one that I need to continue to remind myself of is that the, the most amazing athletes are the ones who have found a way to find their greatness where it might not be evident to everybody else. The ones who break the mold are the ones that I go, oh, like that is so cool. You are not the prototypical athlete, but you somehow like changed all of our minds. And, and in some ways that's, that's what I wanted to do. And, and when I said that I had already, this is when I, I said it when I made the ski team and, but I've made the ski team and, my class, I think I was winning my class at the time, but I was, I was like 30 seconds a run behind the fastest guys in the world. Wow. You know, and, and so, so at like 60 seconds, you know, at 60 miles an hour, that's like a half a mile behind. Wow. Yeah. You know, so that's, that distance is, uh, that's considerable. Uh, but, but that to me, I felt like I needed to prove that. And, and, and I was, I was able to do it in, in Lillehammer in 94. And this is, I mean, I guess I'm jumping ahead, you know, cause there were, there were a lot of difficult times to get to this point, but in Lillehammer in the downhill, I, I was the fastest monoskier in the world. So in the fastest event, I had the fastest time and, and I was the fastest monoskier in the world. And, 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 and and I feel like you know that I wanted to be part of that. I mean, that's just we want to leave some sort of a legacy as an athlete, right? And I wanted to right. to to say, hey, you know, that's that's the stake that I put in the ground. You know, I mean, 
hopefully there'll be a whole lot of other stakes. And, and I'm not saying this is the most impressive one or whatever, but to me, that was the one that, that I chose that I wanted to, that I wanted to put in there and say, Hey, look, I, I worked for this. I found a way to be the fastest mono skier in the world. And, 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 prove that, I guess, probably more to myself. I guess I was showing other people, but sometimes we show other people through that lens uh, to be able to, through their lens, to be able to see ourselves. And that was your first gold. I guess you don't forget your first gold. First of many, many gold Paralympic medals. That was my first gold. Yes, it was my first gold and and actually won all four races in Lillehammer, uh, which was, which was, which was spectacular. You know, I was born in 68 and Jean-Claude Keeley had swept all three, all three events in, uh, in, in, uh, in Val d'Isere, right? Val d'Isere, I think it was Val d'Isere, uh, in, 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 uh, in 68. And, and he was, you know, like, like my father had started skiing as a kid and it's almost like we were adopting a culture, right? We were adopting like a European culture. So Jean-Claude Keeley was one of the, one of my father's heroes, oh. Stein Erickson, those kinds of people. And, and so, so yeah, so in some ways I kind of it was almost like a tribute to my father to say, hey, okay, hey, look, I won all four. You know, this this is my tribute to you through tribute to John Keeley. Back to that Mark Twain quote you uh, you you spoke of a little earlier. <laughs> I think so, and it's it's weird because you know I mean it's like I I joined a group that I had no desire to join. You know I mean like none of us say hey you know I think this this idea of being in a wheelchair sounds like a good idea. You know, like we get great parking spaces, you know, it's like, and, 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 and it's a funny, you know, it's a funny group as well. You know I mean? I think it's just, it's such a big and, and disparate group. You know, it's all, it's all socioeconomic groups. It's all race groups. It's all sexual orientation groups. It's all religious groups. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not like there's, there's necessarily something that's binding that's saying, Hey, you know, because you were disabled, you were, you were like all of the other people. And, but at the same time, I, I felt like my job in some ways was to surprise people mm. that if, that if I could surprise you, that it would, that it would sort of make you, make you look at me differently. But I also hope that if it makes you look at me differently, that it helps you, that it helps you to look at yourself differently. So that's really, you know, that's, those are, those are, those were my objectives, my bigger objectives. It's much bigger to have a goal bigger than yourself. And, and uh, it's much easier to be successful when you have a goal bigger than yourself. For sure. Um, you went on to make two more Paralympic winter teams, correct? Uh, Nagano and Salt Lake. Mm-hmm. Um, and in between Nagano and Salt Lake, you uh, wedged in a, summer Paralympic stint at Sydney. Well, actually, I mean, come yeah. on. It, well, no, it's actually Atlanta, Sydney, and then Athens. So I had three summer oh. games as well. The guys that I really looked up to were the, were the wheelchair racers. Like that was the, that was the demographic. It's kind of like in some ways, if you want to lay claim to being like the best athlete in the world, in some ways it's like, okay, can you, can you run the fastest hundred meters? Right. Because because then everybody can do it. There are no barriers to entry. Everybody in the world right. can, can go and run a hundred meters, and and you might not have access to all the scientific training and all of these things and stuff. But but wheelchair racing, in a lot of ways, was was that it was one of the original sports, 
And, and I wanted to prove it. My Jim Martinson was the guy who built my first monoski for me. He was a Boston Marathon winner. He was a gold medalist in alpine skiing. And, and, you know, just was one of my heroes. And I was trying to, I was trying to follow in his footsteps as much as, right. as much as I could, because that was the definition of being a great athlete was the person who could, person who could do it like Jim did it really. Cause he was a great athlete. Right. So, yeah. That was my definition. Right. Right. So you competed in, in several uh, summer and winter Paralympic games, but how in on earth did you get that in your head that you wanted to climb Kilimanjaro? I mean, it's daunting enough for, somebody who has full use of their legs. It, it is. It's, I, I don't feel responsible for the idea of climbing Kilimanjaro. It is a thought that popped into my head. It literally popped into my head. And, and, and you know, I mean, who is it? It was like Dear Abby or somebody like that or something was like, you know, you, you need to pay attention to your subconscious because, because that's like your true self bubbling to the surface. Hmm. And, and, uh, and, <laughs> and I think it was. I was out for a mountain bike ride. I had an off-road hand cycle that I had not been able to use all that much because, like, you know, you can't throw in another another workout in the midst of all your other workouts, which are supposed to be pointed in one very purposeful direction. And so I was using that. And I went up this uh, mountain bike trail and I was coming down it. And the thought sort of like tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, you need to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And I'd heard about Mount Kilimanjaro. I had a, a roommate who had who had done it as part of his honeymoon and stuff like that. You know, it's like, okay, you know, tallest mountain in Africa. And I didn't know anything about it. I really, I really didn't. And I went and did some research to see if anybody had done it. And, and a few people had tried to do it. Nobody had, had sort of made it all the way to the top in a hand cycle in unassisted. I mean, effectively unassisted. Right. I mean, and, uh, you know, without being carried effectively, you know, cause I would think there were some people who had been carried to the top, but, but, uh, but yeah, how did, how did the idea, I don't, I think the idea really came from, from that sense of, I want to change the perspective and, and we're all climbing a mountain, right? And we, I mean, our everyday lives, we're all Sisyphus, right? We've got the pushing the boulder up the hill. And, and as soon as we stop, and this unfortunately is really very, very similar to climbing a mountain in a hand cycle, because when you stop pedaling, you stop moving. There is no, there is no glide at right. all. You just, you go, oh, okay. All right. I stopped. Now I have to start again and starting again can be really hard. So, um, so yeah, so that was, so the idea I thought was, was that it's a context that people can understand. And I think that being a Paralympic athlete, sometimes it, it's, it's a challenge and being a commentator for the Paralympics to tr try to create a context, to try mm. to create a context that people can understand and go, Oh, Oh, I understand that as opposed to we're just watching it happen on television and some sports are really challenging. It's, it's challenging to see, to see speed on television. Right. It's challenging to see how steep something is on, on television. And, and so to be able to create that context. And I think that the, I think the mountain creates that context. Yeah. Well, and, and you did, you did tell that story um, and I was able to watch it. It was oh, cool. fantastic. Amazing feed. I'd suggest Anybody who can watch the story, please do. But, um, you know, it's curious because your context was changed at some point while going up the mountain, which is that boulder field. 
where it sounds to me like you had a shift. Yeah, it was a shift and it was a shift that I needed, I think, and, and, and craved in some ways, because I've gone back and looked at some of my blogs beforehand and, and thinking, you know, I, I set myself up for two very distinct goals. Uh, and nobody else really knew what was going on. One was I was going to be the first unassisted paraplegic to make it to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. And in my meaning, eye, meaning you're not carried, meaning I'm not carried. Yeah. I'm going to go under my own power. I'm going to go under my own power the whole way. And so in my eyes, that was, that was like being like Roger Bannister. Like when they said a human being is not supposed to run sub four minute mile. And he ran sub four minute mile and his heart and lungs didn't explode. And they had to look at things differently. Right. And Chuck Yeager, same thing, right? Like, like a, a human, a, an aircraft is not supposed to break the sound barrier. If you break the sound barrier, this thing's going to rattle apart and it's 700 miles an hour. You're going to drop out of the sky. And he broke the sound barrier and didn't drop out of the sky. And, and so all of a sudden now they have to, and so that was kind of in my mind, that was what I was trying to orchestrate was getting to the top, being the first one to the top of the mountain and, 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 and forcing people to look at things differently, forcing people to look at me differently, but hopefully look at a billion people in the world differently, or look at somebody that you meet on the sidewalk a little bit differently, maybe change the narrative from, uh, you know, Oh, that's too bad to like, what do you do? You know, what do you do is like, what do you have to teach me? What, you know, how, how can I learn from you? Uh, you know, and that, that was my hope. But the other hope was that I'd been pigeonholed in some ways. And I had done it entirely to myself. I left, I left the hospital two months after the accident, left the hospital on Friday. Two days later, I went back to Middlebury, you know, to an almost 200 year old school built mostly out of granite on the top of a hill in Vermont in the middle of February, you know, and it's like, uh, I, I became, I became people's inspiration. You know, that people are like, wow, like, I can't believe that you can do what you've done. And but being their inspiration, it meant that I wasn't really allowed to struggle. Like I, mm. I, I felt like I had to be that person. I had to be their inspiration on a on a daily basis. And then I started winning some stuff and, it, you know, the image gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's a doppelganger in a lot of ways. It's like, well, where does where does this image end? And where do I start, you know, or where, or where do, uh, you know, and, and so, so it's, uh, I think that, that there was another part of it climbing the Kilimanjaro that I kind of wanted to fail publicly, you know, like, Hey, watch this, watch, watch me do this. And then, and then fail, fail spectacularly. Right. This is the, this is the, I mean, the, I hang the, the Teddy Roosevelt quote, the man in the arena in my office, you know, just to, you know, just to just to remind myself, I want to never want to be uh, among those cold and timid souls who knew, knew neither victory nor defeat. Right? It's like it's like yeah, like that's part of who who I want to be. But at the same time, I wanted to do it to to free myself of the burden, the burden of having to having to having to fulfill this image, this image of of the inspiration, because that image is not human. That image is, I spent all my time and all of my energy trying to fulfill the image as opposed to trying to, trying to be me, trying to be who I am, trying to be honest, trying to be vulnerable. And yeah. So what, what you're speaking of specifically was that 
there was a boulder field. Yep. A boulder field that was completely impassable on your hand cycle. Yeah. You weren't able to do it. So in essence, you were carried across yep. that boulder field. And at the time, was that was a failure, right? That was what you call failing spectacularly? That and well, the, I guess I guess I'm sort of muddling it a little bit. I'm sorry. Uh, so so no, I I failed. I failed in the moment. I failed. I, I don't think it was failing spectacularly. I think the failing spectacularly was the uh, was was orchestrating like giving myself an opportunity to to fail to put myself out there to say, hey, I can do it, and 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 that hopefully free myself from the superhero image that I had to live. In, in the moment when they carried me over the boulders, they carried me for like 100 vertical feet of the 13,000 that we'd climb. But to me, it was, it was failure because I, I only saw that narrow victory, the, the victory on, on the one side to be the first unassisted paraplegic. Like that was, that, that, that was really narrowly defined. That was, which we do as athletes all the time, right? The only way to to, to win is to win. And, and there's only one person on the top step of the podium and, and, and that can be real or, or to break a world record or whatever, you know, the fastest person ever, or whatever those things are. But the other part of it was, was the failing spectacularly was, was kind of giving myself an opportunity and telling people, Hey, watch with the chance that I might not make it. And if I might not make it, I might not be the person that you thought that I was, which can be really hard for me in some ways, but also entirely liberating in another way that I can just say that I can go, okay, now I'm, now I'm free to be who I am. And, and, and so, yeah, so, so it came, I mean, it didn't come to me in the moment, but, but I think I was, I think I was preparing for it as well. And it came to my director in the moment. She's like, yeah, all right. Now, now we actually have a story here. <laughs> if you just, if you just make it up to the top, it's, it's not really a story, but now that, now that this has, has happened, we have a story. It's life. It is. It is. It's real. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that's, I mean, I'd, I'd imagine for you, that's, that's a big part of getting to the question, right? Because as athletes, there there's a and and as human beings, there's a distinct desire to be above the fray, to mm-hmm. be clean, and 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 that is, you know that that that's that's talent in some ways. That's that's uh, that's confidence in some ways. But being muddy, being dirty, being in the fray is like. Is is really ultimately what it's all about, and that was one of the greatest lessons out of being in the hospital for me, was that that I thought the confidence came from what I could do, and the realization was that the confidence was knowing that I could endure whatever was going to come my way, and that's a much more powerful confidence, for sure. Um, well, in so many ways, you have changed the world. I think this perception of, of what, uh, what a Paralympian is capable of and, and, a, a an adaptive uh, person in a wheelchair are capable of capable of. Yeah. And hopefully it's about what a human's capable of really. I mean, that's the, that's the question I'm trying to answer is, mm-hmm. is what's a human, what's a human capable of, you know, what am I capable of as a human? I'm sure I'm capable of much more 
than, than I think I am. We're, we're always willing to quit before we actually really need to quit. So yeah. And trying to see other people. I think that's, that's some of the perspective I've, I've, you know, gone from a, from a place where I thought, you know, where, where I was one thing and then kind of on, I'm on the outside to a certain extent. It changes, changes your perspective, changes your perspective and how you see people and how others, other people see you. And that's, there's a great gift in that. Yeah. You, you, um, you shared a story uh, about how other people perceive you. And that is upon arriving after a long, long trip from, from Tibet, which I can only imagine just takes forever to get back to the United States from Tibet, you were, uh, you arrived home um, and you had a chance encounter with a little girl. Tell me about that and how that kind of shifted the way you think about yourself and the way you believe other people think about you. I, I come back from Tibet and I was just going to get my mail and my mail is, I had one of those collective mailboxes at the end of the street. So parked my car in front of it and started putting, pulling my wheelchair out and I was putting the wheels on and this little girl rode up and she's like six years old on a little pink bike and pink streamers coming off the handlebars. And, and, you know, with the honesty of a six year old, she said, well, what happened to your legs? Hmm. And, you know, and, and I felt like I, I didn't really, I didn't really feel like getting into this conversation. I was kind of tired, you know, it was kind of right. it was a long trip. I didn't feel like trying to explain it, but, but, but I felt like I had to explain it. I mean, this idea of, of if, if we're taught, not to stare, we we don't see people. And if we don't see people, if we don't get a chance to ask questions, we don't get to know somebody who seemingly is different from us. And and we miss out on on both sides. You know, both both parties miss out. So I tried to answer her question as best I could. And but what really what really was the answer for me, I mean what what was the realization is that that this is just you know, it's just, it's just below the surface. You know, I mean, it's, it's a, a six-year-old doesn't necessarily have the political correctness to say, I can't ask that question. Mm. But it's the question that a lot of other people want to ask and don't ask. And, and, and I think that that's, that's kind of the reminder. And it's, you know, I mean, you know, I don't want to spend my whole, whole, whole life, you know, everywhere I go, like, Hey, what happened to you? You know, what happened to you with, and, and it's funny. It's one of those questions like within, within our community, it's, it's one of those questions that, that, you know, that's kind of taboo in some ways, Mm. you know, that, that people like, you know, don't, don't, don't just see me for what happened to me, see me for, for whatever else I'm doing. You know, and 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 see me for who I am. You know, because it's it's easy enough in some ways to to interpret. Hey, what happened to you? As like, okay, uh, you know, tell me tell me that you were doing something wrong so that I don't have to feel sorry for you. Tell me that uh, you know. Tell me that what happened to you can't happen to me. You right, know, right. These kinds of things. You know, I mean, there, there's a bit of insecurity. There's there's you know, I mean, it's 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 easy to go through a variety of different sort of thoughts in your head of, of like, you know, with, with that question. And, but, but it, it, it's a reminder that it, that it's under, that it's under the surface and, and it's easy to complain about not getting a fair shake. You know, Mm. people don't see me for who I am. And it's like, okay, well, are you going to help them to see you for who you are? Or are you going to you know, are, are, are you going to continue to perpetuate 
you know, are going to be part of the part of the solution or part of the problem here. And and so so really, the, I felt like I had to answer that little girl's question as best I could. And I feel like it, it is it is incumbent upon me in a lot of ways to t- I mean, not me, but me and a lot of other people. But it's one of the responsibilities that I take is is trying to tell that story trying to tell that story to the little girl, but it's also why I'm doing a couple of podcasts. So I have a podcast with my, with my foundation, one revolution foundation, Mm -hmm. uh, which is the name tags chat podcast. And we talk to interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community. And, and and a big part of it is, is looking at our, our school message is a resilience message. Our motto is it's not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens to you. Uh, we it base it on the four S's of resilience, which are about self situation, support and strategy. So mm-hmm. question, you know, am I a victim or am I a survivor? You know, is it is it overwhelming or is it a challenge? Am I alone or part of a team? And do I have one strategy or many? And then and then I'm also doing one that's in conjunction. It's a sister podcast to a TV show that I'm trying to work, both of which are called Living It. And, mm. and the, the TV show is, is, is an expert with a disability. So we're flipping the perception right there because, because disability by definition means that you, that I need to help you, you know, that you need to help me. And, and this is an expert with a disability in some particular field, right? Who, who is teaching an adventure to two able-bodied people. It's entrepreneurs, it's artists, it's, uh, it's athletes I'm trying to answer that question of, of who are we when we, when we, you know, put put ourselves out there, when we take that risk, and and try to make something happen, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't, and usually it doesn't work completely smoothly the whole way across, you know. And how do we keep going? And and so those are the, the but but I think that telling the story is a is a way that people can can sort of can can see themselves more and if they see themselves in in us they 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 see us well life is not linear i've heard you uh, refer to uh there's no straight lines in both athletics and in life aren't there right exactly wow wow you're going back to the harry chapin quote that's good uh, (laughs) from my my middlebury uh commencement address this is good i like it yeah no straight lines make up make up our lives right all our uh all our roads have bends no clear cut beginning and so far no dead ends. Yeah. We'll we'll leave it, we'll leave it off at that. But before we uh before we wrap things up, looking back, uh, it's been more than 30 years since your accident. Was that crash somehow a gift? I, I think it was a gift. I mean, I, I have to see it as a gift right now. I mean, a lot of the things that I've done, I never would have imagined in my life. That said. I have no idea what I would have done. I mean, it's really easy to speculate, isn't it? It's like, oh, well, well, I would have left college and I would have done this and I would have done that. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. I mean, that's, that's the, that's, I think that's the, that's the part that I have to remember. And I think it's a part of my story that I have to tell to other people as well is that, yeah, we have this idea of what life could be or should be or should have been, but we're usually wrong <laughs> in terms of, in terms of, I mean, the, the Dalai Lama says something similar, you know, that, that sometimes not getting what you want can be the greatest gift of all. And, and I think that that, those are the things that we need to, that, that I need to remember. I mean, I, I think it was a gift. I mean, it's a gift 
it's a gift in them that I'm alive. You know, I think on a simple level. And then it's a gift in that I had a platform. I mean, I, I don't know that I had a, I had a platform. I was sort of in that, in that like, hey, you are slightly above average. I was like, okay, that's awesome. It's better than being below average, I guess. As bizarre as it sounds, I mean, that's probably the the gift that the accident gave me was was making me unique and and making me believe in being unique. Uh, um, incredible, insightful, inspiring life that you have created for yourself in the wake of this. Uh, life-altering accident. Um, and I so hope that this podcast can be a little bit of of spreading that uh, idea of yours, which is that you want to change the world. I think so. It's been it's been wonderful. And thank you for 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 giving me the questions to open up a great conversation. Hope to meet you someday in person. I look forward to that, definitely. Earlier, Chris spoke about the writings of Mark Twain but I'll leave you with another quote. 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things that you didn't do than the ones that you did do. So throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, catch the trade winds in your sails. And Chris has this speech from Theodore Roosevelt hanging on his wall. The president describes the man in the arena as someone, quote, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. And finally, Sir Edmund Hillary, the first human to summit Mount Everest, said this about climbing to great heights. It's not the mountain we conquer, but ourselves. To find out more about Chris's story, go to his website, chriswaddellspeaking.com. Or to get information about his foundation, go to one-revolution.org. I'm John Moffat, and thanks for joining Chris and I on Sports Life Balance. If you enjoyed our conversation, please give us your five-star review. And of course, don't forget to start climbing your own mountain.